Welcome and thank you for joining us on this new episode of Mufid 19. I am Hisham Salam. I am joined by my co-host Amr Hamzawi. In today's episode, we are discussing the political and economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Lebanon. Joining us today is Rima Majid, who is an assistant professor of sociology at the American University in Beirut. Rima, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Hisham and Amr. Thank you for the invitation. Rima, the COVID-19 pandemic happened at the backdrop of a national uprising in Lebanon calling for an end to the corruption-ridden sectarian political system. How have calls for political change in the country evolved in response to the pandemic? Yeah, well, thank you for, for the question. Uh, it's, uh, I think, of course, I mean, the COVID pandemic is a global pandemic that has hit the, uh, you know, different societies. But I think in the case of Lebanon, probably a few other uh, societies in the region like Iraq or Sudan uh, or Algeria uh, or even Palestine, I might say, uh, it came in the context of um, uprisings that had just started or were about to start. And therefore, uh, it's, you know, at, at the beginning of the, of the uh, uh, pandemic, it really felt like the, one of the most powerful counter-revolutionary forces uh, that had, that was really the moment when um, uh, the squares were emptied by force. The, you know, the, the physical, the spatial presence of an uprising was was put to an end here. So that was a, a revolution that that started um, because of a financial crisis, because of uh, uh, you know the changes that people started to feel in, in summer 2019. Uh, as you say, it it was an uprising that you know was. Uh, against what I call sectarian neoliberalism, now both, uh, uh, both these pillars of, of the Lebanese uh, state and, and system. Uh, and, and that uh, was, was quickly put to a halt and a crisis that keeps on deepening until today, where two years and a half into the crisis, there still is no plan. Rima, I'd like to return to this term you used earlier, sectarian neoliberalism. Could you unpack that term uh, for us a little bit and explain how that system of sectarian neoliberalism has been affected by the pandemic. Sure, so I'm, I'm currently developing this concept of sectarian neoliberalism. And of course, from the, from the sound of it, it's, uh, it's borrowing from a, a long uh, literature uh, and a tradition in thinking about racial capitalism. But the difference is that, uh, is that I'm looking in the case of Lebanon, uh, I'm trying to understand sectarianism and its its, mod, its modern formation within the state of Lebanon. There's a lot written about the history of sectarianism in the country or in the in the region uh, that goes back you know, to the Ottoman period and then the French or British mandate. There's very little about what happened next. And what I'm trying to say here is that the form of political sectarianism that developed in Lebanon and, and its modern history is one that is intrinsically linked to a, a, a mode of uh, production and, and a production of everyday life patterns that are linked to neoliberalism, that are linked to the absence of the state, the deregulation of uh, labor markets, but also to an ideology uh, that is based on the individual. So when the, when, uh, when the pandemic started and the physical presence in the squares uh, uh, had to end, um, the shift online uh, and, you know, the, uh, the danger with it and, uh, you know, uh, surveillance, etc., but also the lack of capacity, organizational capacity and resources meant that uh, these groups could not, could not compete with the more traditional networks of the sectarian uh, uh, state. And this is where, when we saw that 
some of those sectarian leaders, especially those who have an income in, uh, in dollars or from abroad, were able to distribute uh, way more welfare uh, to their uh, constituencies than others. And this is an internal dynamic that um, will play out probably in, if, there's a, if, if we get to the elections. Uh, but even if we don't, it's, it's playing out in that there's a huge transformation class dynamics uh, in, in Lebanon. And there's, the, uh, there's obviously many leaders, uh, traditional sectarian leaders that are going to, uh, to this, I mean, that are going to disappear in this crisis and many new ones that are going to emerge. Thank you so much, Rima, for your insights. Has the uprising contributed to the emergence of alternative networks for healthcare service delivery, as opposed to the two traditional sets of networks in Lebanon, sectarian-based and state welfare networks? Yeah, uh, thank you, Ahmed, for the question. I, I think um, both were uh, uh, taking place. Uh, of course, I mean, um, uh, there was, the traditional networks, uh, but there was also, I mean, when I say non-state welfare, as, as you rightly mentioned, they tap into state resources. It's not that they don't use the state. Uh, but, uh, but also, I mean, there's a third component and it's the pre-existing NGO world that is not the, uh, uh, not essentially the one, the more political organizations that were trying to take shape during the, the uprising, but more of the humanitarian. I would say the uh, emerging networks played a, a big role at the beginning, or they tried a lot, but it, it could not uh, uh, keep up for too long. Very quickly, people became exhausted. And then one important factor is the huge uh, wave of migration, specifically after the explosion. Uh, uh, many of those uh, who were active, I mean, more, more uh, specifically middle-class professional uh, 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 groups in society left after the explosion, which, which left a void in, in many of those circles and uh, have broken many of those networks that were uh, uh, taking, taking shape. And it was filled by, um, by NGOs that were already there or that uh, formed after the explosion, because there was also a, a lot of money coming after that. But what happened is that the state very quickly jumped in and opened those public hospitals um, uh, uh, and, and played the role of, uh, you know, a, a mediator between the uh, money that was the aid money that was coming from international organizations or, uh, you know, other donors. Uh, and the state, and of course, I mean, as everything functions in Lebanon, this is sectarianized as well. Where the hospital is, and which region, which zaim or leader has access or, or power over it, uh, was also the way people would access would have access or not. Thank you, Rima. When 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 the pandemic hit, sectarian leaders were given an opportunity to return to the scene after the uprising. Have they seized that opportunity equally? Yeah, I think, I mean, these transformations are definitely going to weaken some, uh, some leaders or leaderships. I mean, those who are weakened the most are those who, uh, whose main source of clientelism relied on the spoils of the state, uh, rather than those who have an income from abroad. And therefore, uh, you know, the state uh, now has nothing. So if your clientelism relies on, on the spoils of the state, then, you know, 
uh, it's it's a bit of a game over. Those who are who were previously militias uh, during the civil war, today are they're unable to distribute uh, financial welfare or benefits uh, or employment. But what they're distributing, so their 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 clientelism has become a security clientelism. Uh, so it's mainly about protection. It's about security. And they're trying to survive through that. There's no doubt that while some parties, sectarian parties, uh, have become stronger, others have become weaker and are now trying to tap into alternative uh, uh, resources, trying to find uh, uh, you know, ways to survive as the state is, uh, uh, you know, has, has gone completely bankrupt. Rima, in what ways has the pandemic reinforced social and economic inequalities in the country? Uh, well, uh, at all levels, uh, uh, I mean, the pandemic was a, a wake-up call uh, globally uh, to uh, increased uh, inequalities. But in the Arab region and in Lebanon, I mean, I, and I say the Arab region because it's the, it's the region of the world that has some of the most alarming indicators, right? The highest rates of youth unemployment, highest rates of uh, social inequalities, uh, highest rates of female unemployment, and highest rates of informality. Uh, so this is a, a recipe for disaster when you have a, a pandemic because, uh, and, and, and here's why I insist on the question of labor because it's so crucial and so central to what is happening to our societies yet we don't talk about it enough. Uh, the, the main problem with, uh, you know, we talk about the safety nets and charity and how the rich are going to help the poor. And we, what, what we miss is that, <laughs> Uh, is that there's, you know, there's, I mean, the latest uh, Oxfam report is telling us that the rich are getting richer and the, the I mean, the, the billionaires uh, of, of this region and of the world have doubled or, or increased their, their wealth in the past two years. Uh, while, um, you know, we're talking about the majority of, of our societies uh, drowning deeper into poverty or extreme poverty. And Lebanon is an, is a, uh, you know, is an extreme case where, and we're talking about more than, depending on how you measure it, 70, 80% of society living on their poverty line. Uh, and its implication are, of course, not just, and because of the structure of the labor market, people don't have uh, any kind of, of uh, uh, social security. Uh, very few people are employed with contracts. And even those uh, are getting, in the case of Lebanon, uh, what they get, your, your end of service indemnity, et cetera, it's all in Lebanese lira. So it's now, it's lost 90% of its uh, uh, purchasing power. So uh, so basically it doesn't really protect you uh, socially. All the discussions about uh, a ration card uh, that is funded by, by the World Bank um, through the Ministry of Social Affairs, sectarianized again, uh, part of, of, you know, and they've been discussing this uh, for the past year or a bit more. It hasn't seen the light yet. Uh, no, I mean, it's a bad idea uh, when, when, 80, when you know, the majority of societies on their poverty line, you don't give uh, a card uh, with $120. Uh, you need a universal, uh, you know, you need a solution for, for everyone. Uh, but then there's also, I mean, beyond the, uh, the economic aspect uh, or linked to it, uh, there's also the aspects of, you know, how does, how did this pandemic and still, uh, uh, it still does affect, for example, gender relations. We don't talk about what it means 
more for for more marginalized groups and refugees, people with disabilities, women, um, uh, the elderly, people who who live with uh, chronic illnesses. Uh, it's it's huge. I mean, one of the uh, one of the things, for example, that I've researched uh, last year is uh, what is now called period poverty. But one of the I mean, most women in Lebanon today cannot afford uh, uh, menstrual hygiene. Uh, uh, management products. And uh, uh, although this might sound uh, minor, it has huge implications on the lives of women, on their ability to go to work, on their ability to uh, provide their, uh, you know, uh, uh, care labor for free, what it means to move to online learning and online teaching, uh, homeschooling, you know, all of this extra labor that is uh, uh, dumped on, usually on women, and in the case of Lebanon, in many cases, uh, women of color uh, who are domestic workers, uh, uh, and you know many of them have left, and this is another you know aspect of how the crisis has affected uh, uh, class and social relations. Uh, but still, I mean, the exploitation of the groups that were already exploited has doubled or tripled. Uh, uh, so we're not we're talking about really an amplification of all of these in inequalities. Uh, refugees, Palestinians and Syrians in Lebanon, uh, but also Sudanese and, and other uh, nationalities who were really very badly hit. Uh, for example, Syri Syrian refugees and their majority, they, they work in the informal sector. They're seasonal workers and agriculture, etc., without any kind of social protection. And we always talk about uh, how UNHCR is helping them, but UNHCR is really helping a very small portion of uh, of the Syrian residents in Lebanon that is. So these are all areas where um, that have unraveled the, the depth of the pre-existing inequalities. It's important to highlight non-Lebanese in, in this context, uh, especially that Lebanon has, is, one of, is a country that has a very high, the highest rate of uh, refugees per capita. Uh, and uh, we don't talk, usually, you know, when there's a discussion about either the revolution or the pandemic, it's very focused on the Lebanese uh, population. Mm. Uh, and I think, and, and because welfare to those groups has been outsourced to either UNRWA for uh, the Palestinians and the UNHCR for, for the Syrian uh, refugees, they kind of become a separate uh, or a, a side note to the discussion. But I, I think it's very important to include it include everyone, all residents of the country, when we think about the effects of a pandemic on society more, more generally. Rima, you, you've written extensively about the weakness of labor unions and class-based organizations in Lebanon. In what ways has this phenomenon challenged protection and protection schemes given to economically and socially vulnerable communities? But it's hugely affecting uh, the ability of society to protect itself. Uh, and, and, you know, when I, when I think about uh, unions and syndicates and, um, you know, as I said, given, given the structure of the labor market, uh, it, we don't need to think about it just in the traditional sense. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, why don't we have organizations for the unemployed, for example? They are a majority. Uh, or, uh, you know, again, how the, the, the buildup of our uh, unions uh, uh, are, it's still very nationalist in the sense that it doesn't include uh, non-nationals, uh, it only, it doesn't include the, the informal sector. 
And it's really in those sectors that uh, uh, this is where the workers are, right? They're, they're not, they're informal, they're, uh, they don't have contracts, they don't have, so their labor relationships are different than the, the more traditional way we would think about uh, unions. Um, but even if we think about this, uh, the unions that we have, the majority of them and the general confederation of workers in Lebanon is co-opted by, by the sectarian uh, parties, namely by mainly by Harakat Amal. So what is, uh, uh, but the inability of independent uh, workers' movements or, or professionals' movement to, to develop meant that um, many people were unable to, to collectively fight for their rights. And, uh, uh, and, you know, things fall back again on, uh, on, the, on the more traditional ways of protecting yourself, either through your wasta or, or, or uh, you know, through individual one-on-one -on -one cases that we're seeing in many, many institutions in Lebanon, uh, where, uh, uh, where people try to figure out solutions at an individual level, not as, as a collective. And therefore, you know, it means that it's, it's worse off for, for the majority of workers. Uh, and there are attempts, uh, there are many attempts at organizing, but again, it's very difficult to do it in the middle of a crisis because people are afraid to lose uh, their jobs. But this remains probably one of the most important areas uh, to think about, not just in Lebanon, I would, I would say everywhere, uh, but I would say even more so in the Arab region where the labor crisis is so acute that it cannot go on, uh, you know, without any, uh, any uh, intervention. And, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that most people are precarious um, means that it's difficult to organize because the more precarious you are, the less likely you are to organize. But this is exactly when I think this is a time for us to think, this is a time to, to, to think and imagine um, a different ways of doing things, uh, uh, which uh, you know, probably we haven't been doing a lot. But to me, these are, this is a period of counter-revolution uh, that maybe should be some time for us to theorize more, to think more, and to, to try to imagine alternatives that are viable given the actual structures of our societies, rather than, you know, uh, what they did in the French Revolution, what they did in the Russian Revolution, let's just do, uh, try to do the same. I think we really need to think about uh, the, the problems of our time and, and try, to, uh, try to have a political imagination um, try to think about different ways of organizing, what works, what doesn't work, uh, because it's different to organize and to lead revolutions under neoliberalism, I think. Uh, it, it requires a set of tools that we are yet to discover. And until then, we are in this long trajectory, I think, of uh, ebbs and flows. Thank you, Rima. And this brings us to the end of our discussion today and for our audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and see you soon.